And I find that when I'm studying about things that I need, then I can preach about it the most authentically. So even if you're like, uh, I'm like 10 out of 10, my life, like full happiness, that's awesome. Like you should infect the people around you. But today, I'm preaching about this because I need this. Um, what's interesting is that a lot of people do not think that Jesus has that much to say about the subject of happiness. And I kind of feel like it's because a lot of us imagine him or we picture him the way he's portrayed in like, um, in like Renaissance art. Okay, so uh, I mean, I get it. He doesn't look very happy. Granted, he's like literally carrying the cross in some of these paintings, and there's blood coming down from the from the crown of thorns. Um, so in those paintings, his lack of a smile is understandable. But the other paintings where he has like he has the finger thing going, like he just looks so like eh, right? He looks so serious. Like, he kind of looks sad. But in actuality, Isaiah had actually prophesied about the Messiah to come, saying that he would be, this Messiah, Jesus, that he would be anointed with the oil of joy more than all of his companions. What does that mean? It means that Jesus was more joyful. Jesus, he was much, way happier than anyone and everyone around him. And what's crazy is that this prophecy that Isaiah made, it was quoted by the writers of the New Testament multiple times. People that knew Jesus personally, his friends, his companions, people who did life with Jesus. And this is something they also said about him, that Jesus was so happy, that he was the happiest, that he was the most joyful. Well, what's interesting is that most of us, we would not think to look to Jesus for advice on how to live a happy life. Maybe we would like maybe how to live a moral life, maybe how to live a disciplined life, but for happiness, uh, not so much. For happiness, we turn to self-help books. Uh, we, learn, we turn to psychology. We turn to maybe a TED talk, but not to Jesus. I'm going to look at what scripture says this morning. Uh, John chapter 2, starting from verse 1, says, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother came to him and said, And Jesus said, Woman, a term of endearment back then, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Um, verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to. <clears throat> whatever he tells you to. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from. The servants knew. Then the master of the banquet, he called the bridegroom aside, and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best until now. 
And the last verse says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in his name. This last verse. A sign is a pointer to reality. And this passage says that it was this story, what happened here in Cana, this was the first of the signs through which Jesus revealed his glory. And by glory, we're not talking about like how famous or how recognized God is or how much credit he deserves. We're not talking about like that phrase that people say like, oh, all glory to God. What scripture tells us about glory is that it is God's presence, God's character. So think about the glory of God that was revealed to the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert. Right? It manifested as a cloud that covered them during the day when the sun was beating down on them and as a pillar of fire that covered them during the nights when it was freezing cold. That cloud and that pillar of fire, they were his presence. And when the cloud was there, they knew God was there. And when the pillar was there, they knew God was there. So it was his character, his personality, what God is like. If that's the case, based on the story, there's a few assumptions we can make about the kind of God that we know. First of all, our God is the kind of God who, he gets invited to parties. Our God is the kind of God that he goes to that party and he stays, not just for a little bit and then does like a quiet exit and leaves, but he stays for a really long time. He stays until they run out of alcohol. And our God, when they run out of alcohol, when they run out of wine, what does he do? He makes more. And he doesn't just make the cheap stuff. He makes the good stuff. That's what God is like. So, is it really a surprise to us that joy is one of the central teachings of Jesus when we continue to study the Gospel of John? For example, John chapter 15, verse 11. says, I have told you this so that my joy, Jesus is like, I have so much of it, so much joy, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. And that last word, complete, it can be translated to full to the brim, right? I've told you this so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be filled to the brim. And in John chapter 16, verse 24, until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Your joy will be full to the brim. John chapter 17, verse 13. I say these things while I am still in the world so that my disciples may have the full measure of my joy within them. From Jesus, we see that God's plan for your life for my life, is to grow and mature you into the kind of person who is as joyful as he is. And that's why Jesus' prayer for all of his disciples, which is actually, it, it wasn't simply a prayer, it was a vision for your future, for my future, for your life. The vision was that they may have the full measure of joy, my joy, within them. And that's what the word joyful means, right? <coughs> full of joy. Do you guys ever feel that way? Like, when's the last time you felt that way? You felt full of joy. Right? Even if it's not on a regular basis, even if it's like, you're like, oh, I haven't felt that in a couple months, or I, 
I feel full of joy once a year. Um, when's the last time you felt so full of joy that there's like, there's no more room, you're full to the brim of joy, there's no more room for joy, you're maxed out, filled to the brim, and it has to like leak out of you, right? Whether it's like in a smile, or in a chuckle, or a little dance. Who here likes to dance? Okay, some of you guys. those trying times, 
that you can be someone who is joyful, not because of a certain external circumstance, but because you have become someone who is joyful by nature. And because this is what Jesus wants for you, what he wants for me, cultivating and developing a heart, an overall inner condition of who you are inside, it's really at the center of you following Jesus. Okay, this sounds great, Pastor. Okay, how do we do this? The short answer is what Richard Foster, a theologian, author, um, and what other Christian theologians, they call the spiritual discipline of celebration. And um, though that specific phrase or that wording is used in the New Testament, there is a command that goes all throughout the New Testament that starts with Jesus and then is repeated by all the New Testament authors, uh, specifically in particular Paul. And that command is to rejoice. So, so rejoice. Uh, the Greek word for rejoice is kairete. And kairete is the verb form of the noun joy. So more literally, to rejoice means to joy. Right? Um, however, a number of scholars, they argue that a better translation is celebrate. Most of the time, if not all the time, the command is in the plural, not the singular. It's something that you do not alone by yourself, but that you do within a community. And contextually, this word, Karate, uh, rejoice, to celebrate. This word, contextually, oftentimes, it has this association with a meal, or a feast, or a party. So, celebrate, throw a party, you feast together as a community. And that's how you rejoice. Even so, most of us, we don't think of joy as a spiritual discipline. When we think of spiritual disciplines, we think of maybe like studying scripture, prayer, fasting. But we don't really think about joy, because if we're honest, we don't really consider ourselves to have responsibility in joy. What I mean by this is, a lot of us, we're just waiting for a shower of joy from heaven, or something like that. Because um, we're like, well, it's not up to me. I can't control my situation, so I'll be joyful when joyful things happen to me. But that's actually not how it's meant to be. Uh, this is what Richard, Fo Richard Foster says. He says, the decision, the, the decision to set the mind on the higher things of life is an act of the will. That is why celebration is a discipline. It is not something that falls on our head. It is the result of a consciously chosen way of thinking and living. A consciously chosen way. And the beauty of this way is that it's like, it's not a difficult concept. It's not rocket science. It's very simple. There's two steps, thinking and living. Or another way to put it, first, for us to set our minds on joy. As you guys know, and as you have probably experienced in your life, you cannot will joy in your life. Right? Joy is more than an emotion. You can't will an emotion. There's no on and off switch. There's no, like, you can't turn off sadness and then turn on happiness. You can't turn off stress and then turn on the switch to like be relaxed and show up. We don't have control over our emotions. And because of that, many of us, we live at the mercy of our emotions. We, many of us, we live a kind of victim life to our emotions, but we do have control over our minds. 
and our thoughts. And our thought habits, what we give attention to, what we give the space in our mind to. And as a general rule, your feelings follow your thinking. Okay, so uh, last, yesterday, I went to uh, a climate strike. So for those of you guys who like, need to read more news. Um, yesterday, uh, all around the world, like over four million people participated in the climate strike. Um, it was led by young people, primarily um, an activist who's 16 years old from Sweden, named Greta. Um, and her call is for like all the youth of the world to like, hey, this is our planet, and we have to live with the results of what all these old people have done. So we need to do something. We need to demand change. And so um, yesterday, I went out to one of these markets, and it was like very inspiring. But um, I'm just going to show you a very easy example of how your feelings follow your thinking. So um, I don't know if you guys have heard of the term eco-anxiety, but Recently, there's been a lot of articles coming out saying that um, a lot of therapists are needing to speak to children about eco-anxiety because kids are getting really stressed out about the planet. Okay? Um, eco-anxiety refers to a growing sense of fear over climate change and impending environmental disasters. And so if you start just thinking about this and you go down this rabbit hole of like, oh my goodness, like the the world, like, it, the polar ice caps are melting, and like, oh, okay, oh, okay, there's like so much waste, and no one in, very few people in Lowland are composting, and wow, okay, just, sometimes I go down that rabbit hole, and it really stresses me out, uh, then it takes your feelings to that place where you're like, we're doomed. Okay, yesterday, I went to the climate strike. Okay, I took this creepy, creepily, I took this photo of, um, these girls, and then I, I talked to them afterwards, so it was less creepy. Uh, these three girls sitting here, they were like so quiet and well behaved, but when we stood up and we started marching, they were like leading out chants. And I was like very fascinated because their voices were like so baby, like they sounded so young, but they were like leading out these chants, and um, they were like, you know, calling for like change, and they were saying that, you know, like we're the future. And, and so I asked one of the girls, I was like, hey, um, like, sorry, can I ask, like, how old are you? And then she's like, so timid. She goes, I'm 12. And I was like, oh my goodness, you're 12. And then I was like, what about you? She's like, I'm 12. I'm like, wow. And then the third girl, I'm 12. And as I talked to these girls, and as I saw these girls, and as I was like, Honestly, like, I, it felt like there were thousands of people in downtown LA yesterday, and the average age of the people at this march, it was like 14 years old. These were kids who were, they had uh, skipped school to come and protest and raise awareness. And I was like, as I saw this, the, the rabbit hole that I sometimes go down was like, Oh no, like what's gonna happen to our earth and God told us to take care of it and we're not taking care of it. That changed you. You know what? Like, if this many young people care, maybe something will change. The more time you spend thinking about how bad things are in terms of whether it's climate change or um, 
the current affairs uh, in our country, the frequency in which we're experiencing mass shootings, or if you just think about like terrible things that are happening in like North Korea or Sudan, and if you let your mind just continue to go down that, what happens? You start to feel anxious. You start to feel stressed. And in the same way, if you think about God, and if you think about his goodness, and if you think about the promises that he has not just offered to us, but he is giving, he's like, take hold of these promises. If we think about this being who is the source of pure love and joy and peace, and then you think about what is good and pure and true, what do you start to feel? Probably somewhat of a relief from the anxiety that you have formerly felt. Ideally, those thoughts of Jesus might stir in you feelings of joy because your feelings follow your thinking. So you cannot will joy, but you can will thought habits that are curated in such a way that joy is the inevitable byproduct. And we see this in Paul's letter to the Philippians. This is what Paul writes uh, near the end of his letter, he writes this very, very long Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always, or celebrate in the Lord always. I will say it again, because you need to hear it again. Rejoice. Celebrate. So there's this command to cultivate this in the overall condition of your heart. But next, Paul has a few exercises. He's like, this is how you can practice this. This is how, if you do these things, then you and I can grow and mature into becoming joyful people. Verse 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, pure, lovely, whatever is... If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, there are three ish steps here in the last few verses that we read for how you and I can practice setting our minds on prayer. Number one, to surrender the illusion of control to God. Uh, like verse 6 says, don't be worried, don't be stressed out about things, whether it's small or big, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, present your requests to God. Give it all over to Him. Trust it all to Him. If you want to become a joyful person, you have to come to a place where you release and you let go of the illusion of control, and you just you release outcomes to God, and whatever happens, happens. And I'm not saying you're just passively sitting there and believing that, oh, nothing bad's going to happen. That's not what I'm saying. It's deeper than that. What we're saying is, no matter what happens, whether it's how I want it to go or not, either way, I'm okay because I have life with God. And that doesn't mean you don't grieve or mourn or process. It doesn't mean that you don't do all the things within your ability to do. But it means that you detach. You detach to where your happiness and your emotional, spiritual life in general is no longer based on your circumstances. 
And it doesn't mean that you don't care about what happens or what doesn't happen. It just means that you have life with God and life with him is the way that he says you have life. So you release things to him in prayer. Can't control life, can't control people. So you release it to God, you pray, you surrender. Second thing you can do is to give thanks. That's the next one. In every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, give these things over to God. So you practice gratitude with all that you have, with all that you are. You thank God for the very, very best, most life-changing news in your life, all the way to, oh, potluck is a little bit different today. Absolutely. Like, there's a variety of potluck. Like, from the big to the very small, you thank God for those things. Whatever it is, you practice regular gratitude as your new normal. And number three, you focus your attention on the things that are good in this world. If you're anything like me, or the other 7 billion people on this planet, your mind gravitates towards the negative more than the positive. Right? You find yourself more focused on what's wrong in your life than the things that are right in your life. 10 things happen to you throughout the day, 9 things are amazing and great, and one of them is bad. What do you do? You think about the bad thing. 10 things are said to you, 9 are kind and affirming and blessing, and then one of them is a little bit rude, a little snarky, a little unkind, and what do you fixate on? What do you think about before you go to sleep? That one snarky comment. There's just something about us where we tend to focus on the bad, and that's why we so often fill our minds with the exact opposite of what Paul talks about. Whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely. N.T. Wright, on his commentary on Philippians chapter 4, he wrote, the command in verse 8 to think about all the wonderful and lovely things listed here runs directly opposite to the habits of mind instilled by modern media. Read the newspapers. Their stock and trade is anything that is untrue, unholy, unjust, impure, ugly, of ill repute, vicious and blameworthy. Is that a true representation of God's good and beautiful world? How are you going to celebrate the goodness of the Creator if you feed your mind only on the places in the world which humans have made ugly. How are you going to take steps to fill your mind instead with all the things that God has given us to be legitimately pleased with and to enjoy and celebrate? The point is, we need to discipline our minds to focus on the good in our life and in the world because how do you guys, like, just like simple, a simple uh, test for you is how do you start your day? How do you start your day? Do you roll over to the sound of your alarm going off and then you snooze it and then it goes off again? And then you grab your phone and the first thing you start doing is you like start checking emails, um, start making a mental list of all the things you need to do. Um, you check social media, nice. Uh, seems like all your friends, all they do is travel and like they're living their best life, whereas you have to take care of all these things in your life. Um, and then you check the news. What did you do today? Um, what other major crises are going on in this world? This is a recipe for misery. Don't let your phone set your emotional equilibrium, and don't let your newsfeed set your view of the world. Your newsfeed is curated to focus on what is bad and wrong with the world, with very little focus on what is good and beautiful, because that's not where the money is. What's the opposite? Starting your day 
some space between you and your phone, starting the day in scripture and in prayer, and you let prayer set your emotional equilibrium, and you let God's word set your view of what the world is and what it isn't. And regardless of when you give that, when you give that time to God to influence you and to steady you, the most important thing is that you are choosing his way and not the world's way. The way of joy and not the way of just like existing. So you set your mind on joy by surrendering your illusion of control. You give thanks and you focus your attention on all that is good. That's how you set your mind on joy. That's how you curate your thought habits to align with how Jesus teaches us. And if you do this over time, as you regularly practice this, you will become a joyful person. And secondly, you move your body into joy. Your mind and your body are all a part of who you are. And Jesus is in the process of healing all of us, mind and body. What Paul says at the end is, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, he's saying, whatever you've seen in me, in my body, what I do with my body, in my morning routine, in my daily life, put that into practice. And this God, this God of peace, he will be with you. Meaning, follow Jesus the way that I follow Jesus. Adopt my practices. This is what Paul's saying. Adopt my practices that are based on Jesus' practices. And if you do that, you too will become joyful. For a lot of us, that means we need to slow our bodies down. We talked about this last month, that hurry is incompatible with love. It's incompatible with peace. We have to take care of our bodies, sleep, exercise, eating healthy. But we need to also adopt the ways of following Jesus. We have to learn and use our bodies to do that. We have to use our bodies to put ourselves in situations where we can experience joy. So, for example, sharing a meal with people you love, going to the beach, resting fully and completely in the Sabbath. If you practice these things that put you into places of joy, you will become a more joyful person. God has established a created full order of excellence and good things, and it follows naturally that as we give our attention to those things, we will be happy. If we think we'll only have joy by like praying and singing songs and reading scripture, then you're going to get disillusioned really quickly. But if you fill your lives with simple good things, you don't have to like, be rich to do this. If you're filling your life with simple and good things and constantly thanking God for them, you will start to be filled with joy. And there's all sorts of ways to practice celebration that I invite you to put into practice with me this week. Um, something really easy, music. Okay, one of my favorite worship bands, Red Collective, they recently came out with a children's album, and it's so good. Uh, it's so good, it's so uplifting, it's so fun. Even if you are not a child, and even if you don't have children, you should listen to it, because it's really good. Laughter. Okay, practicing and like engaging in laughter. What comedy and laughter do to our hearts? Like telling stories, sharing stories of the different ways to celebrate the things that God is doing in our life and our world, special events like birthdays and anniversaries and Sabbath, an entire day where we're setting it aside to celebrate and to rest. Gratitude, 
have to say gratitude. Jotting down a few things in the morning or the middle of the day, or the night, at night before you sleep, things that you're thankful for. Like for me, I just I wrote a few things down when I got to church today because just on the drive to church, there's there was three things that I was like, oh like these things made me really happy. And so I feel thankful to God for that. The first was listening to that children's album. The second was um, as I was driving to church, there was a car in front of me and there was this dog who had his head out the window. And he looks so happy. And I was like, you're doing a good job. Uh, okay. And the footage just made me really happy. So I was like, oh, that's really nice. And then right before I got to church, I recognized the car in front of me. It was John from Cancun. And then I was like, oh, yay, we're going to church together. And it's like, the thing is, I'm not like, I'm not like a, you know, there's like some people you think of them, and you're like, man, that person's so filled with joy. Like, their spiritual gift is, they just have joy. That is not my spiritual gift. Like, that is not really a fruit of the spirit that I often bear. But studying this this week, I was like, you know, when you start practicing it, you start becoming happy about and thankful for things that normally you're like, it's just a dog. And his tongue is like really long and cute and pink, but like, whatever, it's just a dog. Like, okay, yeah, Jonathan's driving me a car. But... When you're practicing, it actually brings you joy. Hanging out with joyful people. If you struggle with joy, if it doesn't come naturally with you, like me, go hang out with some joyful people. I'm sure some people come into mind. Spend time with them. And to wrap it up, I cannot think of a better way for us to practice the spiritual discipline of celebration than by breaking bread and eating and drinking with a faith family. That was literally Jesus' go-to practice. We don't really read about him singing or dancing, but we read so much about him sitting around the table, eating, breaking bread, even cooking for those we love. And I just find the timing of all of this to be so interesting because I did not plan this. I did not plan this, okay? But... Today is our welcome home dinner for all of our new students. So, if you want to practice joy, come to dinner tonight. Okay? Like, oh, I did RSVP. That's okay. Come to dinner tonight and let us practice celebration together. Um, okay, we're gonna go back to uh, ABT. Can you help me with this? Can we go back to the picture of Eugene? <laughs> Sorry, I left you hanging all sermon long. So, um, Uncle Eugene, you know, I, like I said, originally, I found Eugene to be intimidating. I, not, again, not because anything he did, it's because of, like, me and my own issues. I was like, oh, like, maybe he doesn't like me, or, you know, like, just, but getting to know Eugene. It seems like it's really touching down a Eugene. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, I love Eugene. Um, getting to know Eugene. <laughs> 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 Eugene is like one of my favorite people. Okay? And um, it's not just because he works so incredibly hard for our church. It's not because he does so much behind the scenes that like, the average person probably has no idea how much Eugene does for our church. Amen. But it's because, honestly, the reason I like him so much, because I know Eugene cares about me a lot. 
Um, Eugene takes time to like find out how I'm doing. Eugene expresses to me his concern, like, hey, we don't want you to burn out. Like, don't push yourself so hard. Like, how are you doing? You know that thing you talked to me about? Like, how have you found any resolution for it? What can I, how can I support you? And so this Eugene that, you know, he doesn't look intimidating here because he's like holding his baby and he's sitting next to his wife and he's smiling. But imagine like no smile and you don't know him, right? And like, I don't know, and you're nervous because you're at a new place. Um, that Eugene is still this Eugene, right? But I didn't know what the other people were talking about, what they would like rave about how amazing the dream is. Because I didn't have a relationship with him. You know, one of the things that I preach about a lot, and one of the things that I talk to people about a lot is misunderstandings that we have about God's character. Because we have so many. Like God is genuinely, I believe, the most misunderstood being ever. Like he gets so much like he has to deal with so many of the negative understandings that people have about him, but he gets very little credit for all the good things that he pours into our lives. Why is this important? I need you to hear me on this. You are so immensely and hugely, and I don't even have enough words or enough time to be able to fully capture how loved you are. If you don't believe that yet, that's okay. As you practice following Jesus, your faith in his love for you, it's going to grow. It's going to change. But you are so loved. You are so loved that your happiness, it is of immense importance to God. Not because he's like some, I don't know, he's like, oh, I just want everyone to be happy. Like he's, he's some like jolly dad who's like, oh, all my kids be happy. Because he is happy. In his essence, he is joy. And because Jesus is the one who is anointed with oil of joy more than anyone around him. And we are called to be like Jesus. We are called to reflect Jesus in our lives. So that we can infect the broken and hurting world with joy too. And infect them with the hope of knowing Jesus and how that impacts and it transforms our lives and our day-to-day happiness. I don't know if anyone's ever told you this, but I'm going to tell you this right now. God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be happy. It is of the greatest importance to him. One of my favorite quotes of all the Christian authors out there, John Piper, he writes this. He says, God is most glorified when I am most satisfied in him. Isn't that beautiful? God is most glorified when I am most satisfied in him. So if you are going around living your life, you're like, yeah, I'm Christian, like I follow Jesus. But every day, literally preaching to myself right now, but every day people are like, are you okay? Like you spend most of your time like serving God, but are you okay? You say you're a Christian, but you seem stressed out a lot. Like, are you okay? Something is not right there. God is most glorified. God's character is most clearly seen 
when I am most satisfied. So church, together, let us practice celebration. Come to dinner tonight. <laughs> let's pray. Gracious Father, gracious, joyful, happy Father. Ah, man. We just get so easily swayed on priorities, and we think that we know. But how can we really know unless we are actively, every day following you, and you are speaking into our lives? Our happiness is so important to you, because you are happy, and you desire for us to reflect your character. So God, as a church, may we practice the discipline of celebration. Help us to be happy. Help us to be like your son, Jesus. May these things in his name. Amen.